Hello and welcome to ANZ's Agri-Commodity Update, December edition 2021. And well, time always flies, doesn't it? And here we are right at the very end. And aren't things looking continually good in Ag Australia? Um, a summer edition, I suppose this is, as we look at a range of commodities and an economics update today uh, and a bit of reflection I suppose uh, it's been a really interrupted year again as COVID has come and gone and the restrictions that go hand in hand with that. It's impacted people, their flows, commodity flows and supply chains. But we'd have to keep saying, I think that Agri has proven to be incredibly resilient with um, good uh, regulatory support to, to keep food on the shelves and commodities moving um, in a way that's given a lot of our farmers especially an opportunity to make the most of a really high commodity environment and um, a really good season, generalising, of course, knowing that some pockets aren't as good as others. Season's holding strong, and I guess we're coming into the time of year as, as well where rain is uh, both a, a, a help and, and a curse, depending on which part of the country you're in, whether you're trying to get product off whether you're trying to get product growing and in good quality, you know, trying to get hay and and silage and, and grain off, but then you've got um, other horticultural um, products coming through, um, perhaps welcoming rain. So anyway, it, it's as good as most people could hope for, I think. And prices supporting season means that really profitable through ag right throughout this year and, um, and we're also positive for the outlook. Uh, given that, um, conditions are so good and demand is so strong uh, for all of the potential problems, and we do have some. We still have some subsectors struggling with market access. We do have the continuing potential of COVID. We've had some spots where it hasn't rained like it might have. We've got labour constraints and the cost of labour still looking like a fundamental problem to deal with for quite a while, not just one that will wash away with a, a, a quicker easing of, of COVID restrictions. So there are some limiting factors in there, but you've got to say overall, uh, things could hardly be better. Um, we've got strong demand domestically. We've got strong demand externally for our products. For the talk and concern on China as a key concentration risk and premiums available to that market, um, it is a problem continuing for uh, rock lobster, for example, and wine. But outside of that, we've really seen a redirection in global supply chains that's meant really supply has ruled the day um, and prices have been good as we've gone to various markets outside of China. So the outlook um, is excellent and good financial health sitting behind a lot of that. Um, strong land prices, of course, dominate the scenery and landscape of Australian ag, and uh, that also looks set to continue. Record low cost of finance, bit of pressure creeping into that in the medium term outlook now. So that that will be one to watch as we run through our months next year. Um, still got to be ready, I suppose, for the things that can go wrong. We don't know how COVID will really play out. It's looking more positive for sure, but you know supply chains have reorganize themselves and need to be ready for potential outbreaks and problems that might occur. Um, we still have global trade um, being a bit, not spasmodic, but there are underlying risks and concerns 
political tensions in places that that has the possibility of impacting trade flows. Um, but look, the demand's there, the supply's short, and um, and our season's really good. And that will be the continuing feature, I think, as we get in past the Australian summer this year. Um, we've still got some fantastic developments taking place within the industry as well, so that whilst higher margins in farming especially are being enjoyed, um, it's a real uh, watch on costs. Um, we have the limited um, fertiliser and price issue that's playing out there, chemical as well, labour we've talked about already, but it is a continuing need to invest in, in technology um, and improve productivity to ensure that as a low-cost producer, our industry can make the most of the, the great uh, commodity price conditions that we're seeing. So we're looking forward to how that pans out into next year. But if you're in January thinking about how good things could look in December and what would you take, I think you'd take what we've been given. With that little wrap and before we move into the major commodities, we'll uh, hand over now to Adelaide Timbrell, who will brief us on the state of Australian and perhaps global economics. Over to you. Thanks, Adelaide. Thank you, Mark. So it's looking pretty good, our outlook for 2022, when it comes to both the Australian economy and growth globally as well. Um, 2020 and 2021 were really the two years where we had to learn to navigate COVID and all these new challenges. A lot of the data really got up in the air there, you know, a lot of big swings and volatility. Um, we're hoping that 2022 is kind of the beginning of a bit more of a stabilisation when it comes to some of that data. So we think that uh, economic growth will be around 4.8% uh, through 2022. So a really big acceleration on what we've seen in the last few years, not just in COVID, but also before COVID as well. We also think that we will see the labour market start to normalise as well. Some of the key things that I think will come up over the next year or two are accelerated wage growth, which of course does increase input costs at all different parts of the supply chain. But in Australia and globally, what it also does is it helps people's incomes, it helps people be able to buy more. And when it comes to agriculture products and dining and food, we do see that that tends to grow with income rather than with wealth. What we've seen in the last eight years in Australia in particular is that wage growth has been very sluggish, but wealth growth, particularly through housing, has been very strong. This isn't the kind of balance sheet growth from a household that you really want for the agriculture sector. You really want it more to be uh, income driven rather than that kind of housing wealth driven. And as interest rates go up, that's usually a sign that that income driven side is becoming stronger. We are expecting the cash rate to go up in the first half of 2023. But even before then, uh, in Australia and globally, we will see a tightening cycle of monetary policy. So a lot of people got fixed rate loans, whether it was on their mortgages or on business loans in 2020. Um, if the first of those to roll off will happen in the first half of 2022. And no one in 2022 is really going to be able to get the same rate that they were able to um, fix in 2020. We're already seeing two-year and three-year swaps start to rise. So that means that even if the RBA does nothing um, from now on, we're still going to see that monetary tightening um, begin and we're going to see people have to pay that little bit more on any debts that they're servicing. We're also seeing inflation really accelerate and we will see the US actually tighten their monetary um, cycle a little bit quicker than what we expect to do here in Australia. 
Um, that's a good thing because if we go first, we're more likely to see the currency rise a little bit quicker. But if the US goes a little bit harder than we do, then our currency stays nice and low for exports. So we are expecting to see an average of 75 cents for the AUD USD exchange rate through next year. When we look at some of the key drivers for that, the kind of commodity side has really taken a bit of a backseat to some of the volatility that we will see, particularly through the first half of next year. It's going to take a while for the global economy to really start to figure out what's structural, what's cyclical, what's, you know, just changed temporarily and what we expect in the future. But as that calms down, um, we should see, you know, a lot of our data become a little bit robust, a lot of our economy become more robust. And when we look at Australia compared to other countries, we will probably do that faster. Um, we are seeing some really strong signs that businesses are, are looking pretty happy to invest. People are looking happy to, you know, change jobs and increase their productivity. And all in all, it's going to be a pretty positive year for the economy. Thank you, Adelaide. Joined now by Madeline Swan. Maddie, we're going to start with grains today. Can you tell us what's happening in grains markets? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's all eyes to the sky, really, at the moment when it comes to uh, domestic production and the harvest. We've obviously got off to a bit of a rain-interrupted start to the Australian harvest up north, um, and a few issues stemming out of that. But I think we'll start first with the global market, as we usually do, just have a quick look at what prices are doing there. Um, it would seem really most pundits are saying that we're in a long-term bull market when it comes to grains prices at the moment because they just continue to go upwards. Um, so the wheat price uh, is now at the highest level it's been since 2011, according to the International Grains Council. Similarly, barley price is the highest since it's been since 2013. So that gives you a pretty good idea of where we're sitting globally for prices. The question then is why prices continue to go up so, so continually. Um, to be honest, it's a little difficult to, to tell except to say that there is long-term concerns over lack of supply in the market. So the most re uh, recent uh, USDA uh, forecast of global production saw production forecast uh, uh, revised upwards slightly. Um, so that was due to increases in Russia and a downgrade in the EU and the UK. Consumption was downgraded slightly because this is wheat, pardon me. Consumption of wheat was downgraded slightly primarily because uh, feed, the use of feed wheat declined as it became more expensive. Um, having said all of that, production is still at record levels. Um, so the, that long-term concern over supply and, the, and the, the reduction in global stocks is really the thing that's driving prices upwards. Behind that, um, price is also being driven upwards um, by concern over a lack of uh, high-quality milling wheat. So, but really... Perhaps the biggest news in the past couple of weeks and the thing that has really put a lot of buyers on edge is Russia. Um, this happens, seems to be happening quite regularly um, at the moment, but the Russian government has announced that they do intend to implement export quotas coming into the new year, but they haven't told us what they are. Essentially, in December, it's expected that Russia will announce how big those quotas are and how much of an impact it will have on uh, on export on their export markets, and they'll be implemented in mid-Feb. The government hasn't yet decided how big those big or small those quotas will be, and it will depend very much on how their exports go up until December, January, um, and then also what their harvest is. Their harvest is nearly done and basically locked away, um, so I think they have a fairly good idea of it. But that's obviously made everyone a little bit nervy on the global market and keeps pushing wheat prices higher. 
On the domestic front, as I said, it's all really about the weather, which is not surprising. It's always about the weather when it comes to harvest, but really significant rainfalls across much of the east and some of the west has really uh, made made many uh, harvesters a little bit nervy and a bit jumpy. Um, and as a result, that's seen the price spread between feed wheat and milling wheat go bananas. Um, I've seen some reports of going from a, a $5 a tonne uh, spread to a $50 a tonne spread in just the space of a few weeks. Um, that rain has really made people concerned over the quality of the, of the, um, the, quality of the harvest coming off and also the tonnage. Um, to date, it doesn't appear like it's had a huge impact on quality, but there is more rain coming and we'll keep watching um, as we go. Um, so that's really where we sit in the domestic harvest. We, there are still some pundits who are saying that we expect an, an absolute record harvest of wheat um, for Australia, but ABS continues to sit. We're saying we're going to have the second highest um, harvest ever. So that's where we are. We'll keep watching the skies and see what happens going forward. Thanks, Maddie. I mean, arguably... Uh, protein hasn't really been rewarded for a while and uh, the strength of our domestic feed industry has really been a driver to narrowing that feed to protein spread. Do we think there's possibility of a fundamental or a sort of step change back towards a you know, 20 or $30 premium to protein uh, going forward, um, particularly if Russia does um, hold a bit of grain back from the market? Yeah, you would think so. It's been a rather unusual uh, time in terms of that spread that really feed wheat and milling wheat have been the same value, which has been unusual and odd and, and probably not something that we should usually expect. So I would say going forward, a bigger price spread of some variety will 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 um, stay. How big that is, let's wait and see. But I certainly would think that those protein levels and those quality levels will get better rewarded going forward. Yeah, and we do hope the rain stays off the harvest so that we can get it off in good condition. But what we do know is there's a lot of volume, assuming it can be um, harvested the way we would like. And with potential for more gradings and um, segregations required, it might bring a bit of, um, it might make it tricky through the supply chain as we cater to all of that. And farmers on farm storage options and a variety of storage options might be put to a bit of a test. Yeah, that's it. Uh, you mean the big companies are saying they have enough storage capacity, um, but following last year's record harvest, they're still growing in silos around the country. Um, the old season is still being sold. Um, so there's obviously still a lot of grain around. Um, you know, a lot of the industry professionals and, as I, as I say, uh, a lot of the big the big companies say there is enough, um, but it, it's certainly going to be a logistical task. Yeah, and a lot of the talk had been about barley, of course, and the, the China market issues there. Um, price held up through last season. Is it still looking like a, a clear run for, for barley growers getting yeah. product away at price? Yes, it's still looking all, all good. I mean, I think everybody recognises that there is a certain uh, dollar premium that Australian exporters are missing out on by not going to China. But if you're comparing year-on-year, month-on-month price increases, everything's looking incredibly rosy. Um, obviously, the shipping issues that have been an issue for all bulk um, exports, um, the lack of shipping availability are still an issue, but that's not just specific to Bali. That's for everyone, and everyone seems to be managing with it in their own way. And, of course, perhaps the biggest cream on the cake factor this year is canola, and whilst we've seen some 
wind and rain and hail um, spill a bit of canola to the ground, um, anything gathered up is incredibly profitable and valuable this year. So that that's a nice t- touch on top of the cereal situation, isn't it? Yeah, almost worth its weight in gold, canola these days. Um, it's um, obviously that's all everyone knows. That's as a result of the awful climatic conditions in northern Northern America and Canada and the US. Um, but we're expecting a lot more people to start turning to canola as a viable um, and profitable crop um, at next year's plantings. Um, so expect to see the the, the the tonnage of Australian canola go up. All right, well, moving on to dairy, and of course, it's one of those industries that's quite a significant uh, feed user, and as um, volumes are in the system, it would typically point to a bit of easing of price pressure. Um, That hasn't been seen because global markets have been strong lately, but I guess some weather damage and grading issues might assist the big feed users uh, as long as they can continue to get the quality that they need, but um, how is the dairy sector shaping up at the minute? Yeah, it's all looking thumbs up from uh, global and Australian dairy at the moment. So if we have a quick look at global prices, there was the the latest global dairy trade auction happened a few, uh, about a week ago now at the time of recording. Um, That's another 2% increase in total um, in prices across the board. Um, That continues an upward run that's been going since about late August. So middle of the year, we had a bit of a dip in prices. That's definitely turned around and we're certainly on the way back up again. Um, last last week's auction had huge volumes um, going through going through the auction system and a lot of buyers. So there really is a solid demand sitting behind it. It's not just a lack of supply um, driving prices. So it all looks um, uh, onwards and upwards. And that's obviously resulted in an increase in a step up in prices in Australia for Fonterra and Saputo. Um, and also an expected increase in New Zealand. So if we ha- keep looking at those um, those global prices, what's driving driving that has been primarily cheese and butter. There's been a bit of a return to form for whole milk and skim milk powder, but cheese and butter in particular have increased in prices. Difficult to tell if this is um, another butter bubble, as we had not um, sort of two years ago, um, but certainly in the EU and the U- in the US, butter prices are going through the roof again. Um, so we'll wait and see if that's a short, short-lived thing or a long-term bubble. Primarily, um, the increase in prices has been, been because production has dropped off. So we've had European production has been weather, impact, weather impacted. China's domestic production has dropped off. US production has also dropped off, and that dropped off, and that's been because of, as Mark mentioned, the high feed costs and limited availability because of the poor season in the US. Um, so that that production is also down in New Zealand and Australia just because of the cold, wet spring we've had. Um, so in general. Those prices are being driven upwards by that lack of lack of supply and production. We expect that to turn around at some stage. Um, in general, milk prices are also subject to those food inflation issues that, that are going on globally at the moment. So that that is pushing prices upwards as well, outside of just demand demand and supply. But also, we've got consumption in the in China and the EU slowing down. So we sort of expect that to mitigate prices going forward. But as I said, that's all flown, um, come through to uh, to producers somewhat. In Ireland, we've seen the milk processors lift their prices. So, as I said, have Australia's and New Zealand's, it's 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 coming too. So, in general, it's all looking pretty, pretty onwards and upwards uh, for dairy industry in Australia, but with some thought that there might be mitigation in prices going forward. Thanks, Maddie. It's a um, real reward, I think, for 
dairy farmers who have stuck through a sort of a tough period and um, and hopefully in the last year or so have been able to reinvest with a bit of spare cash flow and get their farms back up to um, a position where they can make the most of these conditions, strong prices, good feed avail availability in the market, water availability back in the system and um, plentiful uh, seasonal um, grasses and, and fodder conservation sort of opportunities for most dairy regions, I would think as well. So um, that that's a real opportunity and hopefully supply doesn't um, play with prices too much over the next season because it has been a bit finely balanced in the past. And if um, we could just get a couple of years at these kind of price levels, I think um, it would be a really great chance for a lot of farmers to not just get back on their feet, but start moving ahead in the industry again. Yeah, absolutely. There's been that shift in the Australian market as production has gone down over the past decade or so, um, which really has put a lot of producers back, certainly not in the driving seat, but more on equal footing with the with the processes in terms of the prices they take. So that's also good news for them. Thank you very much for that, Maddie. We're going to turn now to the beef industry and so much talk on beef throughout the year and how spectacular it's been. And, you know, we thought a thousand cents on the Eki might be a big deal. And lo and behold, we were breaking through 1100 cents to give us a broader story. Welcome, Michael Whitehead. Thank you very much, Mark. Uh, to reiterate what Maddie said about grain, once again, it is largely about the rain uh, at the moment. Yes, you're right. At every point this year where we've discussed beef prices, the thinking has been surely they've peaked, surely they have to plateau or go down now, and at every point they've kept going up. So where do we find ourselves now? Well, here we are in December looking out towards summer, and this would normally be the time where we would start to see beef price or cattle prices flatten and cattle prices start to go down. It didn't happen last year in 2020, but 2020 was not a normal year. Uh, towards the end of 2019 and start of 2020, particularly when the drought breaking rains came, everybody rushed to the market and started buying furiously to rebuild their herds uh, and prices went up. But if you take that as a, an outlying year and look at every other year over back until at least 2016, this is the time of year prices have normally flattened. So will that happen now? Probably. We are probably likely to see prices flatten, not go down markedly, but prices start to plateau just because it is the time of year where a lot of people have restocked, a lot of people have built their herds up again, and they will be looking out over summer, not wanting to spend too much on supplementary feed. However, with the recent good rains in so much cattle country and with so much extra green feed out there and with cattle prices, as you say, sitting around that 1100 cents a kilo for the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator at the moment, what may well happen is that a number of producers may sell what they need to to take advantage of those high prices, but hold on to everything else because they can, because with prices at where they are and with their budgets as what they planned for years ago and with with other prices not too bad, they may well hold back. So we are predicting that there may be some flattening in prices, but we are not predicting any major change there, uh, at least for the next few months. Well, conditions look really good in the southern um, areas and Queensland still notably uh, technically in drought, although rains 
across the region in parts have certainly improved things and you know signs are good for a, a summer wet season but how do we think about um, February March as we just get through this next little period well, if we look forward to February, March, and, and as you say, very important to look at areas like Queensland and the, the massive cattle volumes there, because there are indications of what producers and the industry are thinking at the moment. And maybe the biggest reflection of that is cattle in feedlots right now, which is sitting at its second highest point ever. There was a dip in cattle in feedlots, which had been going up for years and years. It dipped uh, over the past year and a half or so as a lot sold, as there was ample green grass out there, but now it's rocketed up again, as we say, to that second highest point. Why has it done this? And particularly in areas like Queensland, why has it done that? And what's it show us about going forward? It's potentially done this because producers are thinking, well, we're not going to take for granted that the feed will be there, but we do want to maximise on the demand. We want to maximise on the domestic demand for beef that's there and supermarkets and butchers crying out for some certainty. So we make sure we get our, our cattle into those feedlots. We feed them on the ample volumes of grain and reasonably priced grain at the moment so we can get them out there into the domestic market. And as we discussed in our last edition, it's been fascinating to see that even with retail beef prices going up, beef demand hasn't been impacted. The other side of this is that the export demand remains strong, particularly to those markets which like grain-fed beef, uh, being particularly Japan and South Korea. That's one side of it. The, the second side of it very much so is that the economics of feedlots for so many producers and so many players in the supply chain continue to be good. Uh, feedlots themselves continue to find new efficiencies and continue to modernise and become more and more of an important part of the supply chain. And the last point is that's also reflected in who's pushing the prices up. At the start, it was the processors, then it was the restockers, and now it's the feedlotters who are being the major buyers and pushing prices up. So what's it show for those northern states? It shows that the demand and the confidence is strong, but they are strategizing to cover every scenario. Michael, we've always thought that the consumer is being tested and are at the sort of top of price resistance, but does it sound like margin could still be maintained and restored to a level as consumers pay more and more. And in fact, that may not impact supply like we might have thought or price that we might have thought. Absolutely. In the end, we talk about production or coming down to the rain, uh, demand all comes down to the consumer. And so we watch what they do and where they're going. And as you say, and as we've talked about, even with prices of beef going up, um, demands remain strong. The modern consumer is getting healthier and healthier. They are paying more and more attention to what they eat, to what their families eat. They paid extra attention to it through COVID, but it's a long-term trend as people get healthier. And they see red meat and beef as a, a particularly strong part of their diet, and that's going to keep demand going. What is interesting is how this plays out into the processing landscape too. The, the need for protein, where it comes from, whether some of it comes from plants, whether some of it comes from eggs and other areas, but from different kinds of meat has been a big driver of where some of the activity in the processing sector goes. We've seen recent examples of big beef processors buying into the aquaculture space or buying into the goat meat space because they know that the domestic consumer and the global consumer in the export market wants this protein, wants it for their families and will continue to demand. 
demand it. So yes, that demand is continuing to look strong. And as uh, Adelaide says, um, with um, conditions being strong at consumer level, maybe it's that premium choice that people are happy to pay for because they can pay for it. And less consumption at a at a higher quality might well with a, a steak as it might uh, a good quality red or something to go with it. So maybe we have a look at wine would be the natural thing to do. Absolutely, Mark. That is a terrific link between what consumers are doing with high-end steaks and high-end wines and particularly what's happened in COVID. We are seeing this right across the economy. As people can't travel and as they can't spend their money going to Bali or to Europe or to other places, they are spending at home, whether it's renovating their houses, whether it's buying new cars, but also in what they're eating. If we talk about the beef side, go to any butcher and see how much of the $100 a kilo Wagyu uh, is walking off the shelves or other cuts of good cuts of meat as well. The wine industry is fascinating too and what the impact of COVID has been on that. Lots happening in the wine industry and we'll be putting more out on that later, but you're right. At the high end, over the last two years of disruptions, and particularly since June, there has been a noticeable trend in the change of purchases between the, at one end, under $10 bottle of wine, and at the other end, above the $30 bottle of wine. The middle areas have stayed about the same, the same amount of people are buying those, but the cheaper wines have dropped right off whereas the more expensive wines have gone from taking up around 4% of the market to around 27% of the market. People are thinking we are going to spend our money enjoying a good wine, making the most of it. Uh, if we can't travel, spend the time at home, and we'll do that. That's been one trend. One other fascinating trend uh, from COVID, as it seems to be playing out across Australian consumers, is how the two-year disruption period, particularly in places like Melbourne and Sydney, has impacted the different age groups in wine consumption. And if there are two standouts, it's between the Gen Zs, the 18 to 24s, and the Gen Xs, the sort of 40 to, to 54s. The Gen Zs appear to be actually drinking less wine than they were at the start. Uh, there was a surge in wine consumption overall at the start of disruptions, then it went down, and overall, then it went up again as people got sick of lockdown, but the Gen Zs are drinking less than they were before. Their diet is changing that way. The Gen Xs, whether it be parents, whether it be people stuck working from the home desk, are drinking more than they were before. Whether it's good wine and they're over it, they're enjoying life, whether they're bored with things, whatever the reason may be, those are the changes there. It will be fascinating to see how the industry players make the most of these trends. Yes, and we don't want too much self-reflection on that, do we? So maybe we move to the the big talking point in the industry, of course, has been China and the all but halt um, of Australian wine into that market. Just what impact is that going to have on our industry through this vintage into next year, do you think? Interesting with the China tariffs having come in some time ago, that the impact is not necessarily going to be short term. With, with wine being an annual crop, like so many of our crops, um, it does take some time for that volume of the harvest to, to then go through the whole process. So it may be something that plays out over at least two or three years. What will the impact be? In broader terms, it will mean that there is a reasonable percentage of higher end Australian wine 
not going to China um, and whether how much of that actually gets bottled at all. It will mean more of that better wine on Australian shelves. It will mean more competition uh, to some of the smaller players from some of the bigger players who would have been exporting to China and now have to find other markets. Definitely, they're seeing an increase in that higher-end wine going to markets like the UK, which normally takes Australian bulk wine, or the US, which can be hard from a bureaucratic point of view to get wine into normally, but is getting a taste for high-end Australian wine. But for the smaller producers in Australia, yes, competition, competition. And you'll see this playing out in bottle shops where you'll see more volumes of the higher-end Australian wine normally for export in there. On the other hand, as we just talked about, the fact that consumers are buying more of that high-end Australian wine will flatten that out a bit. But expect more of that good, particularly red, to be on the shelves of your Australian bottle shop for a while. And and that's interesting as well, isn't it, as COVID unwinds here and people are more mobile and able to enjoy a restaurant, pub meal and so on, um, that those outlets become viable again and so much of the the volume control has been limited to the big stores um, but now with people eating out um, do we see that having a positive impact back through the manufacturers and even to wine grape growers or are there too many other factors at play to think that could be the case we are absolutely likely to see a positive impact going back through. You're right. Whether in cafes, whether in wine shops, it is a, a great coincidence that this uh, is happening and, and things are being unlocked and people going back to what we'll call normal cafe and bar and restaurant and sporting event with all the social part of the crowds there in summer because Australians will be out there drinking more good sparkling wines, more good whites, more good reds as well. And that will flow back right through the supply chain. That will lift that demand. People will try new labels. We are actively seeing, and a real positive, the crossover between the domestic tourism side and the wineries, the wine regions as well, and consumers. So that's going to be an area that will perhaps boost the fortunes of a lot of the players in the wine supply chain more than it had before. People aren't going to go back to going overseas in the same volumes that they were or the same numbers that they were for a few years yet. They are going to travel in their own country. They are going to go to these wine regions. The wine companies are going to do their best to make you taste something when you're at the cellar door and then buy more boxes of it when you get home. So expect to see almost a permanent change in some of those dynamics flowing forward from this. Well, I look forward to the bustling of people through the Celador estates and um, the flow of bottles out the driveway as people enjoy that experience. And um, um, from a regional economy point of view, really important to have that back on track as well. So hopefully um, we bump into some of you uh, enjoying that kind of experience in the, in the near term. Moving on from wine, Michael, um, let's go to sheep and wool. It's been a Stella run is it losing its shine in the in the battle uh, with beef for the supreme sort of um, farming investment or or are things still looking really strong in the industry? 
Things are still looking really strong in the industry. Let's be absolutely upfront about that. And the thing about the sheep industry, and we all look at the numbers, the fact that it went from 170, 180 odd million sheep uh, back around 1970, so to sort of down in the in the 60s where it is now, what that's meant is that those people who are in the sheep industry are focused, are determined, are innovative, and what a great industry it is at the moment. And wonderfully, at the same time, that world demand for sheep meat continues to be strong, whether in China, coming out of the African swine fever, uh, impact on their red meat demand there, whether it be in the US, where consumers have a taste for Australian lamb and mutton, whether it be in the Middle East, where sheep meat remains perhaps the predominant meat in that area. So demand is strong. Absolutely, over the last couple of months or so, we have seen a fall in the eastern states trade lamb indicator, the benchmark sheep meat price, you could call it. Uh, but that certainly hasn't gone down to bad levels. It, it's, if anything, been a correction. So whilst that's gone down, uh, what we have seen at the other end is another indicator, and that is that the top use at so many sale yards are seeing prices which would have been unbelievable even a year or two ago. When you have your ewes going for over $500, one-and-a-half, two-year-old ewes as well, it is a sign that a number of the players in the industry are confident about the long term. They are confident that they are going to build up their flocks because particularly the meat demand will be there and it will be long term and that the wool demand will be there as well. So it is an industry that retains confidence that will it will have a place there. Um, this hasn't been the case right across the board with those U prices. There have been some softening in sort of the middle and lower areas as well, but still relatively strong going forward. And if that rain keeps up, uh, if the grass stays strong, and if the demand for red meat continues to come back as, as people are out there at restaurants, at cafes, then uh, expect to see confidence for quite a while. Yeah, so great to see, Michael. The the wool story is being fantastic and we can see that pricing through the micron ranges has been incredibly well above uh, a 10-year average and some would argue that the earlier days of that 10-year average was too low. But there is a labour intensity that comes with sheep and also particularly with getting wool off sheep. And the shortage of shearer, the cost of shearing, the unpredictability of that, is that a feature that's likely to remain and um, take some of the shine off the, the sheep wool story? I won't say it's going to take the shine off the sheep wool story, but it's going to be a sectoral trend that the industry adjusts to. And that's what everybody in agriculture does. There are different trends which change things. And, and over time, uh, it doesn't take too long, but over time you adjust to them. You're absolutely right. There, there is a tightness of shearers and, and travel, particularly with New Zealand shearers or shearers going cross-border has impacted that. The other side of it too is that in some of those broader micron walls, um, the, the fact that prices haven't reflected the finer ones has made it marginal at best uh, in terms of the, the benefits of the cost of shearing. What will be the situation going forward? Uh, we may well see, particularly with that move across more and more into sheep meat, that that is a result, um, strong already, but we may see more, more and more producers than we have in the past going to sheep meat. Uh, in terms of the finer walls, that's been a trend for a while as the, the finers, the 16.5s, the 17s, the 18s, the 19s as well, really lift the percentage. It's, it's hard to believe that about 30 years ago, 
those ones that I just mentioned, uh, 19 and under, made up 10% of the volume of wool. They now make up 50%. So we'll continue to see trends go down that path as well. The industry will adjust. The industry will find ways to make it work. Uh, the average sheep place is getting larger, finding new efficiencies, finding new innovations. Yep, so, so there will be an impact, but the industry will work out how to make the most of it. Thank you for that, Michael. All right, well, thanks everybody for listening in again. It's a year wrap, really. It's um, it's a consensus, I think. It's uh, a fantastic time to be in Australian agriculture and agribusiness. Uh, a lot to look forward to into next year. And as we roll into the Christmas uh, period, on behalf of the team at ANZ Agri, hope you all have a, a great, safe and um, enjoyable holiday period, uh, a chance to hopefully relax a little, um, get out and about a bit with your family and friends and and hopefully uh, before or after getting a great crop off, in, along, whatever the case might be. And we look forward to picking up um, next year on how the summer period transpired. Um, big thanks to Adelaide Timbrell, Michael Whitehead, Madeline Swan, Bryony Callender and John Sawa as we conclude our production year on ANZ Agri Commodity Insights and uh, look forward to talking to you all soon. Um, enjoy the read and listen. And of course, we can be contacted anytime for further commentary or answers to the questions that you might have on anything discussed here today or within the sector generally. So for now, it's goodbye from me. Thank you. <laughs>